The title for our message this morning is The Walk of the Word. The Walk of the Word. And we know that walking is the emphasis of this stanza because look at verse 1a, whose way? 1b, who walk? 3b, they walk. 5a, all that my ways. No doubt the psalmist is concerned about daily life how one lives and conducts himself. But it's not just the conduct, but, but the kind of conduct that is his concern. Look at all the words that emphasize an obedient life. An obedient life, 2A, observes. 2B, it seeks. 3A, it works. 4B and 5B and 8A, it keeps. 6B, it looks. 7A, it gives thanks. And 7B, it learns. And the psalmist knew the importance of the Word of God to a life of obedience. That is why this first stanza, in every verse, it is filled with repetition or references to Scripture, employing different synonyms. Verse 1b, he calls Scripture the law. 2a, his testimonies. 3b, ways. 4a, precepts. 5b, 8a, statutes. 6b, your commandments. 7b, righteous judgments. And notice the possessive element in each of those constructions. The psalmist is not talking merely in abstract terms. He's talking of the law of the Lord, 1b. He's talking of his testimonies, 2a. His ways, 3b. 4a, your precepts. 5b, 8a, your statutes. 6b, your commandments. 7b, your righteous judgments. In other words, God is the source. Truth finds its origin in Him. So to ignore any of God's revelation is to neglect God Himself. The psalmist speaks so highly, so loftily of Scripture in the psalm that some have even accused Him of bibliolatry, meaning he is worshiping Scripture instead of God. But that would only be true if Scripture wasn't God's primary vehicle to drive us to God. You know the saying, Calvin, by the Word of God alone can, can God be known. To be lazy with the Scriptures is to be lazy with knowing and loving the God of the Scriptures. One last observation here before we look at our text. Uh, notice how intensely personal the psalmist gets. He begins with third-person plural pronouns, 1a, 2a, those, 3a, 3b, they. Then he switches in verse 4 to you and we. And verses 5 through 8 are intensely personal. 5a, my, 6, I, I. Double repetition. Seven, I, you, I, eight, I, me. It is not a stranger to God who turns this portion of Scripture, but a friend of God, one well acquainted in his ways, one who is desiring to be pleasing to him in every respect. Let's look at our outline. I want us to see from this text Three results, three results of a path marked out by the Word of God. First result, it is a satisfying walk, verses 1 through 3. 
Second result, it is a sanctifying walk, verses 4 through 5. Third and final result, it is a solid walk, verses 6 through 8. And we'll repeat those as we go on. First result, it is a satisfying walk, verses 1 through 3. And we heard it this morning, even from the testimonies, right? Going about the world, trying to find joy and pleasure and peace in the world. But you cannot. A path marked out by the word of God is the only path that produces satisfaction. Hollywood will not say that to you. The media will laugh at such a declaration. But let God be true and every man a liar. Look at verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. That is an emphatic declaration. The word blessed begins the sentence and it ushers us into this psalm as Psalm 1 does into the Psalter. And it's used here with a superlative force. It means to be truly happy. Oh, how most happy the psalmist begins. This is profound joy, deep-seated contentment. We live in a society with a lot of toys, but not a lot of joy. Possessions don't give you happiness, not a lasting one at that, right? Jesus did say a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's not where you get joy. What the world lacks, the scripture promises plenty of. And the word blessed is a common occurrence in the Psalms, occurring some 25 times and twice right here in our text, verses 1 and verses 2. And verse 1 clarifies the blessed are the blameless in way. In other words, before you hashtag blessed, you need to hashtag Luke 9. Before you hashtag blessed, you need to hashtag if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. There is no blessing outside of the path laid out by God. There is no blessing in a way that is not blameless. And the word blameless is a common word in the Old Testament. Genesis 6-9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Genesis 17-1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So with the first two occurrences of this word blameless in the Old Testament, you notice that blamelessness has to do with your walk before God, right? Noah was blameless. He walked with God. Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Like the unblemished animal sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood, to lead a blameless life means to not be crooked in your character. No crookedness. So verse 1 is an exclusive declaration of happiness for one group of people, those whose conduct is above reproach. He goes on, verse 1b, who walk in the law of the Lord, helping us, clarifying what he means by blameless. To be blameless is to be obedient. And we aren't talking about heartless devotion to the law. Verse 97 in this chapter, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So he loves the law. And the rest of this chapter, he says he delights in it. 
He does not forget it. He wants to keep it. The law is better to him than thousands of gold and silver. And of course, the law for him was not only the Ten Commandments, but all that God had said in the books of Moses to guide and to instruct and to order his people how to live right in a way that is pleasing to him. So the blessed are the blameless whose way is characterized, governed by, shaped by, and consumed with the law. They are serious about obedience because to do that is to follow God's blueprint for the successful, happy life. Can it be said of you this morning that you walk in the law of the Lord, that you live and move and have your being around God's instruction and word and revelation given to you? No, and I understand we are not under the Mosaic law, but the New Testament is filled. I mean, a plethora of imperatives in the New Testament. Can it be said that you walk in those, that you do your bidding in the instructions laid out for us in the Scriptures, that you are an obedient Christian? Or are you a compromise? Look at verse 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. A double emphasis of blessing, further making a connection between obedience and satisfaction. No joy in disobedience. No joy, nada. And verse 3 will tell us that. In fact, disobedience only brings pain, sorrow, and loss. And notice the emphasis in both verses, verses 1 and 2. It is not only that they will be blessed to obey, but it is that they are blessed. The way of obedience is not just a path to blessing. It is the path of blessing. It is to walk in a way that God approves. And what God approves surely brings the utmost kind of contentment, right? To observe is to keep watch over to God with fidelity. The psalmist is saying, I have a fiduciary duty towards your testimonies. And it is to keep them. I don't merely scrutinize as a passive Observer, I study and apply. It was said of Ezra, right? Ezra 7.10, he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And not only that, to practice it before he could teach it to others. And nine other times in this psalm, he's going to mention that he observes God's word. He made it the business of his life. And this is what gave him the wisdom to live rightly before God. That he can even say in verse 100, I understand more than the eight. Why? Because I observe your precepts. In fact, he uses the same word, observe, uh, several other times in reference to other synonyms of Scripture. He says in verse 33, I observe your statutes. Verse 34, I observe your law. Right In verse 100, I've just read it to you, I observe your precepts. Verse 115, I observe your commandments. In other words, the totality of God's revelation is under his purview. He is obsessed with 
obeying and observing all that God has revealed in the word. But here specifically, he says, I observe your testimonies. And the word testimonies signify God's authority as the lawgiver and our responsibility as those receiving the law to keep it, to obey it. And throughout this chapter, he muses over the testimonies of God. Verse 14, he says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all the riches profound. Money makes the world go around. Your statutes make me go around. He rejoices and he delights in them. They are his joy and inheritance. He loves them. They are wonderful to him. And he goes on in verse 2, who seek him with all their heart. The word order in the original begins with, with all their heart, placing an emphasis on the heart. With all their heart, or with a whole heart, they seek Him. This is no half-hearted worship. No division of priorities. No double-mindedness. And you can see that the object is Him, right? Who seek Him. To be blameless in your conduct. To walk in God's law and to observe His testimonies is to seek God. It is deception to seek God through yoga or, or, or some meditation or whatever that is devoid of Scripture. True religion begins in the heart. The target is God. And the only medium from my heart to God is the Scripture. No other way. The psalmist understood the importance of the heart. Four other times in this chapter, he expresses his longing and desire for a complete, single-minded devotion to God from all of his heart. He says in verse 34, I want to keep your law with all my heart. Verse 69, with all my heart, I will observe your precepts. No place for lukewarmness. I want to be true. I want to be faithful. I want all of me engaged in pursuing all of you. He was a Josianic man. Remember King Josiah, it says in Second Kings 23.3 that Josiah made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. That is total, complete submission. Thoroughgoing in all of its implications. And of course, Josiah was a disciple of Moses, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the kind of seeking he describes here is habitual, ongoing, regular. It's a pattern yourself after this. There are no semester breaks in this. No halftime reviews. I mean, it's just, it has no break. It is constant determined, nonstop pursuit of God, walking worthy before Him. Being serious about the Word of God is not bibliolatry. It is to seek God. Look at verse 3. They also do no unrighteousness. They, they do not work unrighteousness or practice wrongdoing. 
and the significance of what he says here is not that they are perfect, because they are not, and they can never be this side of heaven. But it is that when their life is observed at mountain view, it is clear that they lead lives worthy of imitation. The overall picture of their life is not disobedience, but a wholesome reality of obedience. They do not practice wickedness. They do not labor in the vineyard of Satan. And they do not harbor sin or demonstrate its rotten fruit in their lives. What the psalmist says here negatively, he has already said positively in verses 1 and 2. The practice of their life is faithfulness and obedience, not sin and disobedience. This is Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's the first part of Psalm 1 here in verse 3. And the second part of Psalm 1 is in verses 1 and 2. But his delight is to observe the law of the Lord, to meditate on it day and night. This is a Psalm 1 man. Or there may be moments of failure in their lives, but such pitfalls are only ever momentary, never habitual. A synoptic view of their life is that they hate evil and love what is good. He says in Psalm 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way, not just some, but any and every way that is deviant from your law, I have withdrawn myself. And he concludes verse 3, they walk in his ways. And ways speak of God's ways as revealed in Scripture. Right, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the description of the blessed. If you took a video of their life this week, the summary will be, they walk in his ways. Is that the summary of your life? Is that the summary of your week just this past week? On the drive to church this morning, the interaction between you and the kids and you and your wife, would this be the summary? And sometimes they do need to consider their ways. And perhaps as you're thinking about your conversations this morning, you're thinking, oh, I, I did not walk in his ways. The word I said, the thought I thought, the, the interaction I had with my wife and kids, uh, that wasn't this. And the psalmist goes, went through this himself, verse 59, he says, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I considered my ways and I repented myself back to your testimonies. So divine blessings are guaranteed to those who make God's revealed will for humanity their ultimate priorities in daily conduct and lifestyle. You might say, I hear you, preacher man. I've been a Christian for such and such a time, and I rarely feel blessed. And I'll respond to you that many of us don't feel blessed. The reality is life is hard, right? And we often don't feel blessed. Why? I think it's because we let our circumstances dictate our feelings. We are like Elisha 7, remember? Who was more concerned with the army and could not see the mighty host 
that were at God's disposal. We have every reason to be happy, to be joyful, to be content, to be faithful to God, not grumbling, not complaining, but to walk faithfully before our God. And we'll look at the details when we get there, but he says, end of verse 8, I do, do not forsake me, praying to God, do not forsake me utterly. The psalmist is blessed, yet he is in deep trouble. Can you deal with that? In other words, our blessings in God do not discount the difficulties in this life. Even in the midst of trouble and trials, you can still experience profound joy because your joy is not circumstantially derived. It comes from the God of the Word, the source of strength and peace, the God that you love and obey, the God to whom you say, where else can we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. Right? Jesus said, the words which I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So we, we cannot turn anywhere else. And if they are spirit and they are life, surely they should give us joy, strengthen us, no matter the circumstances. So we've seen the first result of a path marked out by the Word of God. It is a satisfying walk. Verses 1 through 3, in essence, give us the GPS coordinates to happiness. What are those coordinates? Holiness. Holiness. And so this connects well with the second result. The second result of a path marked out by the Word of God. It is a sanctifying walk. Verses 4 through 5. A path marked out by the word produces sanctification. And the hallmark of sanctification is fervent obedience, right? And no doubt that these two verses are about that. Twice using the verb to keep in the second part of both verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. You have ordained your precepts. The pronoun you is placed at the very beginning in the original for emphasis. So you have ordained your precepts is an emphatic declaration that God is the sole source of truth. And bound up with that is our responsibility to respond appropriately to that truth. And that God ordains means that he commands, he instructs, and he gives orders. And verse 88 refers to God's word as the testimony of your mouth. Where did the word of God come from, it came from his mouth. And the significance of this emphatic declaration is that God has spoken. It is a stated fact. So you cannot live in oblivion. You cannot live as though we don't have the scripture. You cannot live as though you could grope in the dark searching for what God has communicated. No, he has spoken finally, decisively, and we can hear him. If you need to hear him loudly, just read the scripture loudly. The word precepts occurs 24 times in the Old Testament. 21 of those times in this chapter, and it speaks of God's manual with step-by-step -step principles and procedures to follow. This sets apart our God from pagan gods who have mood swings, all smiles today and tomorrow they all glum, and you never really know what to expect of them. I remember once being in in India on a business trip, and a friend decided, a colleague, he wanted to take me to this, 
Hindu temple, beautiful. I mean, plated with gold all around it. The very first thing you did when you entered the temple, you had to ring the coffin, and the many coffins you rang into that, uh, the many coins you rang into that coffin would be what wakes up the God to let him know you're there. And there may be days when the God just doesn't want to show up. And so you just keep ringing the coins. I mean, this was an executive. I remember asking him, so friend, do you think, do you think he hears you? He looked at me like, who gave you a ride here again? Do you want to know your way back to the hotel? Should I leave you right here? But the point is, that is not our God. Our God has communicated clearly. How marvelous that we have the scripture which speaks so clearly. Right, Micah 6, 8. This is what God requires of you. It's amazing. We can hear God because he's talked to us. You have ordained your precepts. No secret code necessary. Just the willingness to, to listen and to obey. Verse 4, that we should keep them diligently. The psalmist acknowledges the basic purpose for which God has communicated with us. We are to keep the precepts diligently. This is the first mention of that verb to keep, which he's going to use in verse 5, and he will use it at least 18 other times in this chapter, speaking primarily of his commitment to hold steadfastly to God's word and to align his conduct with its demands. And that's how he closes this stanza. Verse 8a, I shall keep your statutes. God doesn't want half-baked, hypocritical, feigned obedience. He has commanded us to keep his word with utmost care and diligence. And the word to keep is not very different from observe in verse 2. In fact, they are used as a per. Verse 34, he says, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all of my heart. So both words, observe and keep, signify serious guardianship and attentiveness and devotion to God's revelation. And, the, and that word to keep and all of its variations is all over Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Moses urges the Israelites to hear, to, to listen, to do, to observe, to keep, to practice, and to conform their ways to God's ways, which must be kept diligently. And same word, diligently, will be used end of verse 8, but there it's in a negative context, and so it's translated utterly. And that's a common idiom in the Old Testament to intensify an expression. It is the idea of muchness, of exceedingly, of abundance. And of course, the psalmist wants to keep God's precepts diligently. Why? Because he loves them exceedingly. He says that in verse 167. And what else can it mean that he keeps them diligently other than he does it with a whole heart? What he's already said in verse 2. He is all in in what God requires. Continuing in verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established. He begins this verse with a passionate exclamation. Oh, if only there is a sense of desperation, an awareness of his great need, a dependence on God who in verse 4 requires diligent obedience. 
So in response, the psalmist says, I want that to be me. I want to keep with diligence the precepts that you have commanded. Oh, that you would help me. And he is asking for this to be a continuous reality in his life. Or may there be no broken links in the chain of my obedience. I desire to be steadfast, to be fixed, to be set in order, to be straight, hour by hour, moment by moment. I don't want any crookedness in my walk, ever. And notice he's the one receiving the action. Why? Because God, to whom he turns, must do this. He is begging God to come to his aid. So this is his prayer. You gave us your truth to be kept diligently, verse 4. Oh, please help me to do just that, verse 5. And I think you pray this way when you realize that verse 168 is true. For all my ways are, all my ways are before you. And that should provoke all of us to reverential awe. If all my ways are before you, then I want my ways to be established in your statutes. I want verse 5b to keep your statutes. And the word statutes speaks of God's eternally established revelation, carved in in stone, as it were, to be permanently obeyed. This is what sparked the Pelagian controversy, not this verse in particular, but the, the concept of it. Augustine prayed like the psalmist does here, Oh God, grant what you command and command what you desire. Meaning, God, please give the enablement necessary to keep the law. To which Pelagius shook his head in disagreement. Because Pelagius did not believe that God's grace was necessary for obedience. He thought it was all of man. Man could do it. And maybe that is you here today. You've grown self-sufficient in your walk. And you don't sense the desperation or feel the need for the grace of God. Or oh, there is blessing in our obedience, verses 1 through 3. But we must all readily admit that that obedience is a work of God. And hence, whatever blessings follow are undeserved. We don't pat ourselves on the back for obedience. We give praise to God and we ask Him to keep us more and more in the path of obedience. Right? Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. We work, but oh, who works in our work? God does. The apostles had no issue speaking this way. So we have seen that the word, when appropriated and applied, results in happiness and holiness, in satisfaction and sanctification. And to the world, of course, the two cannot mix, right? The world hates the way of holiness. Why? Because they believe it is too restricting. It's got no joy. And we say, because we say what the Scripture says, to be happy is to be holy. And to be holy is to be, to be happy. God is the most blessed being in the universe. And is He holy? Oh, He's thrice holy. 
Now let's look finally at the, the lost result from a path marked out by the word of God. Third, it is a solid wall, verses 6 through 8. A path marked out by the word of God produces stability. It is a devoted, persevering walk. And he uses three I shall statements to illustrate endurance in this final section. Look at verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed. First I shall statement. And the Greek translation of this verse uses that emphatic negation common in Paul's letters. May it never be. So we could translate verse 6a, then I will never become ashamed. Those whose way is family established in keeping the commandments of God will never be put to shame. They will never be put to disgrace, to guilt, and to humiliation. When will I not encounter shame? Verse 6, he goes on, when I look upon all your commandments. Like law in verse 1, the word commandments emphasizes that God gave them. And as a result, the commandments carry with them the authority of God himself. So he's saying, when I sustain my gaze and my scrutiny on all your commandments, I don't want to be ashamed. Not just some, not only a few, not the ones I like that don't expose my weaknesses and sins, but as often as I interact with your word with searching intensity, I want no cause for shame. I don't want my life to have points of departures with what you have revealed in your word. I don't want sin hiding in the nooks and crannies of my heart. I want complete alignment, failing of which there is shame. A solid life is a life of no shame. A sinful life is a shameful life. Sorry, sniffles came when Pastor Joe was, uh, was introducing me with all those terrible words he said about me. <laughs> Sin brings shame. Expose yourself constantly to the totality of the Word of God and keep all of it, and you will be spared shame. The psalmist is saying, I want every part of my life to align with every part of your Word, so I have no cause for shame when I read it. Keep reading verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. This is the second I shall statement. And the expression to give thanks occurs one other time in Psalm 119, verse 62. But it occurs some 66 times in the Psalms, and it simply means to give praise to God, to declare His worth. The emphasis here is that this practice of giving praise would become his daily portion. He vows to forever praise God. He insists that retirement will never rear its ugly head in his life of praise. This is a lifelong commitment from which he refuses to be moved. He wants to do it with uprightness of heart, meaning with sincerity and truth. In other words, I, I won't speak praise with my lips while my heart is far from you. That was Jesus' indictment to the people of his day, right? This nation honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I don't want that. What will cause them to give thanks? Does he say when I eat a nice cut of 
turkey on Thanksgiving dinner? No, it's not that. And of course, we give thanks to the Lord for the turkey, right? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, end of verse 7, when I learn your righteous judgments. And the word judgments, others translated as ordinances, it speaks of Scripture as God's revealed decisions on what is right and wrong and why and how something is right and wrong. You get right and wrong from God. You want to know what's right? You want to know what's wrong? You want to know how it's right, how it's wrong? You turn to Scripture. Scripture is God's righteous judgments. And to learn here, that's a thoroughly discipleship term. It is to learn in order to, to apply, in order to practice. The idea is not getting a PhD. The idea is not accumulation of knowledge. The idea is to imitate. The idea is what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. When I learn your righteous judgments, and it happens, that word to learn occurs a dozen times in Psalm 119, and most of those times as an imperative. The psalmist says constantly, teach me. You can see it in verse 33, and that happens few other times where he's begging God to give him the instruction. So here in verse 7, he says, when I learn, which the rest of the psalm tells us will happen because God will be his teacher, I want the result to be praise. He wants his soul to, to soar with wings of praise because he knows more of God's revelation. He doesn't want to know more of God's revelation so he can enter into a theological debate, so he can tweet his library away on Twitter. That's not why. He wants to know more of God's revelation so that he can give praise to God, so he can give thanks to God. And of course, when you know more of God's revelation, he says in verse 9, right, Young man, keep his way pure according to your word, and I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 11. It's a life of praise. It's a life that shuns sin and praises God. And that's why to sit under biblical instruction is both a privilege and a danger. It is a privilege when it leads you to an increasing awareness of your shortcomings and of who God is and leads you to praise Him. But it is an impediment when it puffs you up to think that your knowledge is of any benefit while your heart remains cold and indifferent to the God which Scripture speaks about. To stop learning the judgments of God is to grow weary of praising Him. It is to say you find His truth burdensome. The road to Hallelujah Avenue is paved with learning Scripture. Final verse, look at verse 8. I shall keep your statutes. This is a third I shall statement. What a commitment. And the word order in the original is telling with the object placed at the very beginning. Your statutes, he begins, I shall keep. It is your word and therefore it matters to me. And we've already defined statutes in verse 5 and noted that the significance of that is to God's the eternality of God's revelation. The psalmist cannot get over his need to respond to God's word in obedience. 
he affirmed that God commanded his precepts to be kept, verse 4. And because of that, he prayed for his own way to be established to keep God's statutes, verse 5. Now he emphatically declares, starting the sentence with your statutes, that he commits himself to habitual, patent obedience to the word of God. No holiday seasons away from obedience. He vows to be consistent in the duty of obedience. He is resolute on obedience because he is fixed on full dependence on God, verse 5, as the one who will enable him, as the one who will assist him, as the one who will help him. This is not willpower. When he says, I shall keep your statutes, he's not looking to his internal strength. He acknowledges that it is God's power at work in his life because he wants to be obedient. And he finishes the stanza with a rather perplexing plea. Look at it. Do not forsake me utterly. And, and this entreaty gives us a sneak peek into his life and the bombardment of trials that often attended his way. And we know that because of what he says in the rest of Psalm 119. He says in verse 23, princes sit and talk against me. Verse 85, he says, the arrogant have dug pits for me. Verse 86, they have persecuted me with a lie. Where is he going to turn in the midst of such gruesome challenges? He turns to his God. He turns to God for aid. He prays for deliverance. Help me, rescue me, restore me, deliver me. Do not completely leave me in this situation. And he can pray this way because God has promised in his word to never leave nor forsake his own. And that very word, forsake, occurs in Psalm 22, verse 1. David there languished, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same word. And in due time, of course, David was, was heard and delivered, right? But when David's descendant cried out, on that rugged cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did he hear from heaven? Silence. In essence, heaven said, I must abandon you, my son, so we don't abandon them. So friends, you and I, we don't need to shrink back in trials. We press on to full maturity, pleading with the Lord for help, entrusting ourselves to his sovereignty, knowing that the Son was forsaken so that you and I will never be abandoned by the Father. In fact, His good, wise, and perfect sovereignty changes our perspective of trials. And we see how trials are of benefit to us. He says in verse 67, the psalmist, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And he says in verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So a, self, a solid walk perseveres in constant interaction with all of God's commandments to expose to the light of Scripture any practices that may bring shame. A solid walk perseveres in learning Scripture as the only medium to stir up the soul in praying. 
a solid walk unflinchingly commits its way to obedience. And as it does, it begs God for help in the midst of trials. In fact, it is possible that the very reason he's finding himself in this difficult situation was because of his obedience, because of his life vouched, attached, committed to the way of the word. So how is your walk this morning? Are you satisfied? Are you being sanctified? Is your walk becoming more and more stable? The barometer of your joy, growth, and stamina is gauged by the temperature of your obedience to the Word of God. And I remind you who wrote this psalm, one who looked forward to Christ only as a promise, uh, one who did not have the 27 books of the New Testament. He did not know the blessings of the new covenant inaugurated by the blood of Christ. It could not be said of him as it was said of the Galatians that before their eyes, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And yet he writes this wonderful devotion to the word of God, celebrating the revelation he does have and vowing himself with fervor to be obedient to it. How much more we, we upon whom the, the promises have come and have been fulfilled, we can look back at the Messiah who has accomplished his redemptive work. Our greater privileges assume greater devotion. We have more than any saints they've ever had in the Old Testament. And because of that, our commitment to obedience ought to be way more. So believer, if you are dilly-dallying with Sin, just know that you will not experience the path of joy and the blessing of the Lord and your growth in sanctification will be hampered because sin can only ever take strength away from you. Sin robs you of the vitality and the stamina needed for this joyful, happy, heavenly walk. But unbeliever, recognize if you are here and you have not yet trusted in Christ, recognize that your blessings on this life are from God, but they are not a commentary of how good God thinks of you. It's possible to be so blessed by God and so detested by Him. Eternal blessings come only to those who obey. And as an unbeliever, your first instance of obedience begins with this. Obey the gospel. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. Turn away from this world and turn to the one who has given you eternal life in himself. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who Observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. 
I shall give thanks to you with an uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help all of us to walk worthy of the calling we have received in Christ. Thank you that even in the midst of trials, our way is blessed because our way is paved by you, by your grace, by your word. Help us to never turn to the left or to the right, but to vow ourselves to walk in this way to the very end. Please keep us, we ask, in your son's name.